hello everybody out there uh wherever you might be watching on x youtube facebook uh twitch and linkedin um and uh this is david rovix with uh one of my uh used to be regular but now uh, very periodic um discussions with uh somebody else on Streamyard. And um, what I, uh, the person I'm going to be uh, bringing onto the stage, uh, onto the screen here to, to talk with uh, today is uh, Chet Gardner, who is my musical collaborator on the most recent album that you can see in the corner of the screen if you're looking. It's uh, Notes from a Holocaust, which uh, is now out on Spotify as of a few days ago. And, and uh, we um, finished. Uh, all the recording of it uh, earlier uh, this month. And um, the album consists of songs I wrote between uh, no uh, October and the end of December, all of them about uh, the ongoing genocide of the people of Gaza. And um, and uh, so I th I've been doing various broadcasts related to the album, but I thought I would interview Chet, uh, who ha has been my musical collaborator on the whole thing. As people um, who have been following the process are aware, uh, that you've often heard me uh, doing a song um, that I've recorded right here in my living room with this uh, familiar backdrop. And uh, and then you will, uh, if you you will have heard another version of the song, often a few days later, uh, with uh, Chet's uh, wonderful instrumentation and and uh, and also vastly improved vocals and other uh, sounds coming from me uh, that he also uh, has improved upon in the studio. And um, that's we did that uh, process for uh, just about two dozen songs. And um, and people have been asking along the way, um, how does that work? And um, and I and I I particularly enjoy uh, hearing musicians talking shop, uh, and apparently other people do too. So um, that's what you're going to get uh, uh, very soon. But first, I thought I would play a uh, one an example of one of these songs um, that that I'm talking about. So you you know for those who you know whether or not you've heard them uh here's uh here's one of them and uh which was also set to a video by an anonymous filmmaker from california and uh this is uh, one of the tracks um from the album called famine and disease <laughs> Places they report it. If you listen to the news, you'll hear the press conferences and the words they choose to describe the facts on the ground. In the Gaza Strip, you can hear the measured freezes, see the trembling lips, uttering words so rarely spoken. Eyes open wide as one official after the other speaks of genocide. From the head of each department, you can hear the powerless please. The next wave of the carnage will be famine and disease. As the fighter jets rain missiles down from way up in the sky. As the tower blocks collapse with each mission that they fly. As the hospitals are targeted along with everything. As the cameras show us the apocalypse they bring. With no buildings, with no homes, when no structure remains Once it's all been leveled by the ships and tanks and planes Every medical practitioner around the earth agrees The next wave of the carnage will be famine and disease As the Congress writes a blank check to facilitate the slaughter Biden says he told them to let in the food and water But they're not and nothing happens But more destruction everywhere White phosphorus burning any skin exposed to air Actions making clear that annihilation is the Israeli regime's plan for the Palestinian nation. If you survive the bombings, you don't burn or freeze. The next wave of the carnage will be famine and disease. Across the world, from Yemen to Algeria, militias on the move. From Lebanon to Syria, while on the Gaza Strip, if they have a working phone, they're trying to tell us all, don't just leave us here alone. Don't look away as this happens again, while this world 
still has Palestinians Because for all these refugees Descended from other refugees The next wave of the carnage Will be famine and disease And with no further ado, I'm bringing Chet on. Hello, Chet. Hi. <laughs> Good to have you. Hello, um, world. And uh, and as I I might have uh, mentioned, if uh, if whatever platform you're watching on, if you got any comments or questions uh, for Chet or I, uh, or just um, just let them let them you know just type them out. I can see them come in in a feed here on Streamyard from whatever platform you're watching on. And Chet is joining us from his yurt in Hawaii. And uh, yeah, lovely. Chet, um, I, I, I was kind of, I kind of had in mind to talk kind of two-part conversation. One part about uh, uh, just you and how you got to be <laughs> who you are. And then uh, the next part, uh, talk and shop about, uh, about uh, the, 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 the details that hopefully won't bore other people but might particularly interest musicians and audio engineers out there who like to know how these remote collaborative rep recording projects uh happen but um i i i, I want to ask you first about your your background which i already know something about but other people may not and uh and I, and it's a fascinating background and and um because as an audio engineer um and as a musician uh, it's it's sort of tied in with with your your previous background with uh, computers and and with living through the 1960s and being a musician as well as being a, a military veteran against the war i mean these things are we're going to tie all these things together somehow or other but uh, i <laughs> i don't have an exact strategy for how that's going to work but they all do tie together very much and um uh, let's. Can we start early on? Where 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 did you grow up? When did you first get to Hawaii? You were quite young when you first got to Hawaii, which is kind of unusual. Yeah. There weren't there were a lot fewer people in Hawaii when you first lived there, I believe. Yeah, my father was Navy, so he was career Navy, and uh, he got stationed at Pearl. So in 1956, we showed up on a MSTS transport ship. And I did three years here, played or uh, went to junior high school here and right up until they got statehood. And then we left in 59, mm. going to DC, got restationed to DC. But uh, because of that Navy background, I, I really didn't want to give up the, you know, cheap, the commissary and the, and the PX and the cheap food. I was afraid of being a civilian. So I ended up going to the U.S. Naval Academy. <laughs> and when did you go in? Uh, I was class of 67. So I went in in, six, in 1963. I went a year of college at the University of Georgia. I should have known better. I went a year of college, University of Georgia. I had a band and we were making good money. I mean, real good money playing fraternity parties and and uh, I was in a fraternity as a pledge for the whole year because I didn't want to bother going through hazing. <laughs> then I went to the Naval Academy. Uh, so you were anyway, playing music back then? When you oh, yeah. I, I started playing in high school. So, yeah, my first gig was in Georgetown, D.C. in 1961 uh, at the, uh, the, uh, what's the name? Shamrock Bar and Grill which still oh, exists. And that band, we also auditioned for Ted Mack's Amateur Hour just before they went off the air. This is a story of my timing. <laughs> was, was the musical uh, tendency related to the family too? Or that was... Uh, that no, was actually, it's more in spite of. Uh, my dad took some uke lessons back in the Arthur Godfrey days when it was a big deal. And he had these ukuleles lying around from when he took lessons in 51. And so in 53, I asked him to show me uh, something on the uke and he showed me five foot two. And he had all these books with this really hard to do Arthur Godfrey style chordal melodies, Liebenstrom and the world is waiting for the sunrise, stuff like that. 
uh, was one one chord per note. But nobody told me it was supposed to be hard. So mm. I just sat in my room and Worked learned how to play all these things <laughs> on the ukulele. Anyway, my grandmother gave me a guitar in 1955 for Christmas. And my mother, I don't think, ever forgave her for that. And uh, <laughs> Set you uh, well, off on least, the wrong path. At least not until, actually, my mother finally, I, I guess she was in her 80s. I was in my 60s, and she gave me a T-shirt with all these guitars, half of which I've owned. And uh, I think it was her final admission that, yes, there, I was going to be a musician. So after <laughs> 40 years of actually performing and recording and stuff, she recognized, really, you know, yeah, said, better okay, late okay. I don't think he's going to be a corporate guy no, anymore. it's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, in 64, i sitting there in my Navy suit, and I was listening to my copy of uh, Bob Dylan's second album, I think it was. Mm. And there was this song I, we're listening to called Masters of War. Mm. And I looked down, and it was me. Oops. And the penny dropped, and I realized, no, I don't want to go kill people. But and then you, so were, you had only been in resigned. the military. You had resigned in 64. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I okay. was only in for not even a year. I was ah. real lucky because it was 64. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. Two years later, they were like scraping the bottom of the barrel for all the cannon fodder they could get after Lyndon Johnson lied to everybody and cranked it up. But in 64, and it was, in, wasn't a problem. In 64, I resigned, and, and they put me in a branch of the inactive Navy Reserve for people who resigned from Annapolis that they don't want to ever talk to again. <laughs> so I was the Navy Reserve, but they didn't want me, and then the Army couldn't touch me. So we worked out a deal there. But, so no, no prison time or any of that for, for leaving? Oh, no, yeah. no, no, no. So... But this uh, was before the protests really got started. I mean, you were yeah. the, the, against the Vietnam War. Yeah. I, I've, by all accounts, that really didn't start getting big until 66 or even later, right? Around 66, 65, 66. It's sort mm -hmm. of like kind of the free speech movement in 64 kind of kicked off that direction. And uh, Were you and in then, California uh, at all for that or were you in Hawaii? let's see where was i 64 well i moved to san francisco in 66 i was in gainesville florida in 65 and heard rumors they were playing music in san francisco and <laughs> they were true <laughs> so were i playing music up. in san francisco yeah, yeah 66 and, and uh, of course with my typical great timing i i switched from rock and roll to uh, folk music in 66, just as folk was dying. Kind of doing the backwards and... thing there. I mean, of course, <laughs> I guess the folk scene was still there, right? But it, it had been really was, eclipsed by the rock scene much more. It was right? still there, but yeah, the San Francisco rock scene was just hammering it. You know, Garcia went from bluegrass yeah. to Grateful Dead, stuff like yeah. that. Uh, and but like being in San Francisco stuff. at the time and with the, the music scene, I mean, I, there's a book by Matt Callahan um, about who also was there at the time. Um, and wrote, he wrote a wonderful book about the San Francisco music scene in the late 60s and early 70s. And they, the belief was widespread that music could change the world at the time in oh, San Francisco. Yeah. yeah? That was like we, common knowledge, as I understand it. I mean, I, I, know, I wasn't oh, there, was, but according to his book. Music was the point of the spear of the movement. Right. So we knew we were going to change the world because they're idiots. And of course, and they made the mistake. Like, you figured that out early on. I mean, that was like, was that pretty much like as soon as you got to San Francisco, it was like, oh, yeah, music is, I mean, or you already were there before you got there. I was. I already wanted to play music, but then when I got to San Francisco, it it became a a wider thing. It, it included the entire movement, and that's when I got involved with anti-war protests and all that sort of thing. Excuse me. Oof, it's early here. <laughs> yeah, right. You're still. <laughs> and uh, uh, oh, I had a train of thought, but it just got 
the Intel War music? Uh, how, how did the music like morph like the San Francisco music scene and and uh, and the sort of uh, anti anti war or the sort of the way I don't know the political. You know how in, there's there's certain people who like to make it seem like there was a. Uh, a, a really uh, stark divide between the political crowd and the and the and the countercultural music freak crowd. And my understanding is really that's largely manufactured. The divide didn't exist. The music was central to the pol politics and vice versa. The, the Venn diagram has got eighty percent uh, congruence. <laughs> you know what I mean? What, what's a Venn diagram? <laughs> a Venn diagram where you got political and then you got music uh -huh. and then circles you know right and they 80%. merge where yeah. they where they go 80 percent of it is inside the merge yeah i mean really i was oh i i the train just got back on the track uh, -huh. uh after world war ii this is this is my theory probably bullshit mm -hmm. but after world war ii our parents came back from the war and the moms were you know working in the factories and and uh in my case, mine was <laughs> involuntarily raising an infant. Uh, mm. And uh, they got back from the war and their kids were going to get educated. So they, mostly middle-class white, but uh, they didn't mind getting taxed for a great education. They stressed critical thinking and love of learning over, you know, rote crap that they went through in the 30s, uh, the Duffy reader and all that. And then they, but they created this monster, this Frankenstein monster of young people who could think for themselves. Dangerous. Yeah. And we like, my little penny dropped in 64 they started thinking about you know all the all the millions of people being killed in 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 uh the far east for what and so my i'm a little older than that that generation but uh my generation s said no <laughs> <laughs> and one of the major manifestations was our music. So the music had an edge. It had uh, lyrics. It had that sentiment that, you know, screw you. We're going to build a different world. We're not going to, we're not going to, boy, were we wrong. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very optimistic time though, huh? And when we did this? No, it's true. It was, it's not the same. It's it. worse. Yeah, much it's worse. Now. Yeah, but but then at the same time, who knows? Um, who knows how much worse things might have been without that kind of movement? I mean, as as you know, many people have said. Like, I mean, it's it's important to observe because it's important to you know that people know that. They, well, you know, without all those people in the streets, yeah, they did kill millions of people in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and that is so horrific that it's um. You know, it's it's hard to imagine that things could even be worse than that. But at the same time, they did not use nuclear weapons, and you know, I mean, and they very well might have without uh, you know so many people in the streets. Who knows? What I mean, yeah. Well, and 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 we made them stop for about twelve years, right? Sort of exactly sorta. right after the you know, Vietnam they had War. to they had to go underground with all of the all of Proxy the conflicts armies. they were causing all around the world, but. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't until uh, uh, actually probably ninety one. Iraq, right? Ninety one. Uh, unless yeah. you count Panama, yeah. Panama the, maybe. Panama was like a kind of grease in the wheels, but yeah, I'd say the first Gulf slaughter in ninety one is when the the Pandora's box was opened again, and and all of the oh, there's this wonderful quote from I Claudius. Maybe I can find it. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'll look while we're talking. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, we we thought we had it wired, but but then they figured out, and then of course nine eleven just opened up floodgates. It's just uh, yeah, of the 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 sort of counter 
counterattack, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, from the '60s, and uh, the yeah. widespread, you know, patriotism, anti-terrorism, and all this kind of stuff that permeates so much of society now. And they had, you know, a couple new generations of cannon fodder who just didn't. Oh, here it is. Here's the quote: "Let mm. all the poison that lurks in the mud hatch out." Yeah, that's <laughs> as why Claudius was glad about uh, Caligula being made emperor. Mm. Now we have Caligula here. So. Caligula, and two of them. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> various Caligulas to choose from. <laughs> and you're. Um, when did you get into computers or, or, or electronics? Or, I mean, your, your interest in audio engineering and other forms of, of uh, engineering, I mean, people who are involved with music know uh, that um, it's very technological. You know, there's a lot of technology involved with recording. And, you know, certainly since the 90s, I mean, direct to hard drive recording and all this, you know, every, you go into a music studio and people are using all kinds of fancy, you know, pro tools and, and computers that, that operate at very high speeds and, and, you know, much more than normal people would tend to have. And, and, but this has been the case in the music scene for a long, long time. And I mean, like my back, even as in the sixties, there was electronic music and all sorts of recording technology that, you know, I mean, the, how they did multi-track recording back then, and I mean, there's. Talk, can you talk about your early, early experiences with uh, computers and music? And well, it's about the same timing. In '64, actually, it was '65. I was in my third college, going nowhere, and I took the only computer course at Georgia Tech that was in the catalog, and I really enjoyed it. So I dropped out of college and followed my girlfriend down to the University of Florida where she was going to school. And I did short order again for a little while and remembered how much that sucked uh, being a short order cook. And so I walked around on the university campus and I just happened to walk into Dr. Frank Broyles office at the, at the physics department. And, uh, I was asking him, you got any jobs or anything? And he was saying, you know, because I had a math background and I did take the computer course and got a B plus. And, uh, and he, and he, I, we were sitting there talking and this woman came to the door and she said, I just can't handle it anymore. Can't handle the full schedule and the job and everything. So he turned to me and he said, you want her job? <laughs> and I was a programmer trainee for the physics department. He gave me $10,000 worth of computer time on the IBM 709 tube computer and said, uh, go learn Fortran. I'll see you in a couple months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I taught myself Fortran before they started putting numbers after it. It was just Fortran. Great. And that was the beginning. I did full time there. And then when I got to the Bay Area in 66, I uh, ended up getting a another computer job. And so I had them off and on. Uh, I was either programming computers for decent money or I was playing music for subsistence, <laughs> depending, and, depending on did, how the layoff patterns went. Right. And when did the, um, the, the, the two uh, start having anything well, the to do two, with each other? The convergence uh it, it was kind of slow in 68 i met this guy robert orban and he uh maybe it was 69 at a party up in the redwoods redwood hills redwood city hills and he's uh he is still with us thank goodness he's a genius audio engineer he's probably the u.s version of ray dolby he's an mm. inventor and everything and he had this equipment. He had a four-track Ampex uh, recorder and a, and a board and a couple of great Neumann microphones, U47 and a U67, or maybe it was 87. And, uh, he, but he was living in an apartment. He couldn't set it up. So he set it up in my basement. 
So I had a four track recording studio in my basement and I had to learn how to do that. By 1970, he had bought an eight track 3M machine. And I like I spent a weekend one uh, wiring uh, XLR connectors to put the studio together. So we had the studio. So I had a studio. I could just go in and do it. So we recorded a couple albums worth of material. I recorded some stuff of my own. I had my bands in there a bunch of times. A lot of this is on my website. You can hear some of the music. But I learned, you know, doing the recording. As far as the digital part, that started in the 90s. I bought a uh, Session 8, which was an early digital a to D uh, interface that w under DOS, MS-DOS. This is before Windows. Mm. And it was, a, it was a real pain in the ass because you know, every time I needed to use it, it took like two, three days to get it working again mm. <laughs> before yeah. I could actually record with it. But then uh, it went from, uh, from that to ADAT, actually, was the next step which is digital uh, audio tape uh for for those uh oh yeah <laughs> don't that's remember. right <laughs> i keep forgetting yeah the first one i bought in the early 80s i think it's thirty five hundred dollars for an eight track uh essentially oh, it was a videotape recorder running at three times normal speed in mm -hmm. order to get the get the bandwidth to record eight tracks of audio Mm. And I ended up with two of those. One of them is still down in the <laughs> down in the studio where we recorded uh, uh, "Killing the Messenger." Although the tapes have all deteriorated, they're no good anymore. But uh, yeah, with that, and then the first digital multi-track was was probably uh, Cubase, and that would have been. Around 2008, 9, somewhere in there. And then we're getting to stuff that are still commonly used, right? I mean, Cubase, I hear about a lot. That's still that's Cube. still with us, right? That's what I did this uh, album on. Was and Cubase what is Cubase? Pro 12. It's uh, a multi-track recorder and, and then some uh, that runs on computers. Uh I so it's similar show. to Pro Tools. It's a, a it's a, yeah. It's 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 in that same thing. It's Pro Tools. Uh, there's Cubase, and then there's a couple others that people use. Uh, I never got into Pro Tools. I was into Cubase early, so I never felt the need. I've looked at it, and it's a it's a slightly different paradigm. So the workflow would be you know you'd have another learning curve. You got it climb that I don't need. Cubase is just as good. Cubase also comes with uh, uh, the synthesizer that I used on some of those tracks that was built into Cubase. Oh, interesting. And that's so nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, so when I was, I wonder, maybe we should see, speaking of that synthesizer, maybe we should just play one more, uh, one more track because uh, the synthesizer in, um, um, Baby Jesus is so nice. Oh yeah, that was Let's that was see. done on December twelfth. December twelfth. Nineteen? No, twenty twenty-three. Where did it go in this folder? Nothing has uh, turns up when I'm looking for it. it. Must must be in here. Oh, that's strange. Ah, custom files. It's always something. <laughs> Why does it say custom files? That was well, like when mm -hmm. I was trying to get ready and I installed Adobe Reader and it installed McAfee, so I had to delete McAfee and then I then you showed up and <laughs> oh, always something. <laughs> always something. Let's hear that let's hear that track and then let's talk some more. Sounds like a plan. She was looking for a place to have a baby But 
with the hospitals destroyed. She headed south in a donkey cart to give birth to her little boy. She wasn't lying on a manger, no hay beneath her on the ground. She couldn't hear her newborn's cries with the bombs exploding all around. There's baby Jesus lying in the rubble, a hungry little bag of skin and bones. With his mother Mary broken there beside him In the place that they were calling a safe zone Without a blank, without a drop of water Nothing between them and the sky The wise men from the east tried to come to see him But they're trapped at the crossing in Sinai There's no fuel for the water pumps Only for the drones always buzzing overhead Reminding every child there beneath them The next moment it could be your mama dead There's baby Jesus lying in the rubble a hungry little bag of skin and bones With his mother Mary broken there beside him In the place that they were calling a safe zone He's the Son of God, said the angel As the babe began to shiver from the cold There was a twinkle in his eye for a moment Before the rigor mortis took hold This prophet who was born to save our species This child who was the only son Of all the tens of thousands killed so far Now we can add another one there's baby Jesus lying in the rubble A hungry little bag of skin and bones With his mother Mary broken there beside him In the place that they were calling a safe zone In the place that they were calling a safe zone In the place that they were calling a safe zone Sorry about uh, that. Even 100% Kona can go down the wrong pipe. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I don't even know if that was picking up in the, um, you know, in the broadcast. In the I mix. just heard it in my, so I, yeah, yeah. I, don't know. I still haven't uh, worked out all the kinks of StreamYard, but I think it, it works better than I think. Remember that one open mic where my computer, my internet connection completely crapped out, but uh, you kept on playing, and then eventually, like 20 minutes later, I was able to get back online, and and it all worked fine. So that yeah, Streamyard, it doesn't, yeah, it's it's a good, it's good, it's good stuff. But um, I think that song is it's less uh, there's less going on uh, than with famine and disease. So I think it's a really nice uh, illustration of of the kind of stuff that you were doing. Like for one thing, I mean. I mean, some of those sounds that you were doing, getting from the synth or however, wherever they're coming from, it's not even like necessarily notes. It's just like textures that just are so effective. And then when the, the twinkle in his eye, that line, and then you come in with that synth that really just uh, transforms the whole feeling, I think, in the song. And I, I, can you go through some of the, just the, the process of when you get a track like that? I've been, I was sending you an MP3 and then you said that there was an AI assisted tool that you were using yeah. to separate the tracks, which is, I think, for any geeks out there might be of interest because even you don't have to be that, um, you know, that, you know, even if you're quite young, you might not 
uh, realize that the, the AI tools that are that are out there and and how much easier it is to separate tracks that would have at one point been fairly inseparable. Is that right? I mean, it's gotten a lot easier. Well, I'll tell you that that one that you're talking about, the Moises.ai, uh, it's a program that can separate out the tr uh, individual tracks from a mix, which actually saved our session last year because I was able to use it to separate your bazooki and your vocal that we recorded live together. Right. And I able, was able to have complete control over the final mix thanks to that. Great. So I've been using it a lot and uh, definitely and getting my 40, 40, 40, $40 a year's worth. That's for sure. Right. M-O, let's see, M-O-I-S as in Sam, E-S as in Sam, dot A-I. Great. And uh, I put up a visual aid here, which is actually the track sheet for Baby Jesus. Well, let's see. And uh, that's in that other screen there. I don't know how well people can see it. Right. But I can, I can use this uh, to explain. I was getting the MP3s from you, and then I would run them through Moises, and separate out the vocal and the guitar part. Mm. So there they are. Then I could put them in Cubase, normalize them so I have a nice strong signal. And this is actually automation. So there's automation built into Cubase. This is automating the, uh, the guitar. So I started it lower and then bumped it up right here so I could do this once and then just it'll remember it and do it every time. In the olden days, we mm. used to spend hours, you right. know, rehearsing the moves on the faders to get the mix we wanted. Great. And and then, of course, if we came back, you know, had to do a remix days later, it would take literally hours to set up the mix and we never got it the same. So in this case, with Cubase, I save every mix. So I have 6, 10, 12, 14 saves for every song. Uh, every edit that I do, I, I save it. So if I make, you know, get discombobulated later on, or if I want to remix it, I can do that very quickly. So anyway, we started with Dave, David Rovick's vocal, David Rovick's guitar. In this case, I, I uh, all these songs I ended up adding bass next. Mm -hmm. The basses I used are uh, on a few songs. I used a U bass, which is a little ukulele sized bass that sounds like an upright. And but this most is a, of them. I remember, I, you know, being out there at your studio in Hawaii. That U bass is one of the most surprising little discoveries because it's just this little thing, and you kind of unassuming, and you wouldn't think you're going to get such a big powerful sort of acoustic bass kind of sound from it but it's this big like it kind of almost gets louder after you play the note you know it kind of like swells you know very cool little instrument yeah it's like a, a an upright you know stand-up bass on steroids i played it last sunday uh with a couple of guys i sat in with uh first show up at the market and uh, I love watching people's faces when I start playing it. And, and these big, giant bass notes are coming out of this teeny little ukulele. And they're looking around. Go, Where's that instrument coming from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but most of them, actually, I, let's see if we can get a picture of it. This is my baby. Uh, that's a, a custom-built John Jordan six string fretless and there's my gallagher lovely that i got back in 1976 mr jw gallagher built that for me and uh those are mm. those are my babies but that bass is on most of the tracks and including i think this one yeah this one's that's the jordan so i'd record a bass part first and as you can see, I had to move some notes around. <laughs> I love it. I love it, man. 
and da, that's da. you move, move notes around with this so are you are you just using the mouse to kind of move the notes around or is there ai well, you, assist in that too no no that's purely purely Listening the, and, the tiny little brain in here and you're moving the uh, notes you, around you to cut, get the rhythm better or, yeah or intonation to match too? up with the with the guitar better yeah i mm -hmm. can't do the internet intonation although sometimes i can move a, a bad note or a good note from somewhere else and drop it in where a bad note is that i had to do that a couple three times most of the time i can play it but uh, you know your your playing is uh, marginally idiosyncratic uh, yes, so, right, and inconsistent. So I'd be I'd be moving along one, two, three, four, and then there would be a like a you know like half, a, half a, a three point one would show up, and and of course that's yeah. when I had to move the notes. It's all good. No, everybody's like that, including me. Well, so we, the bass would that. always go next. Those of us who have um, who, whose models include people like Woody Guthrie, you know. <laughs> and, I mean, I have much better rhythm than he did, but, you know, well, that was. <laughs> well, I told you my story about my friend Bob Orban and I and my brother did it, recorded a song back in 1970. And then through various set of circumstances, including a, what is now, I guess, a collector's item EP that we produced in 1970, uh, the Leave It On A Jet Plane song was finally released on vinyl last year or maybe it was a year before, but 52 years after we recorded it, it's a year before, it was finally released. But we did this whole album's worth of material, and then we hired Chicken Hirsch to come in and, and lay the drums, uh, Country Joe and the Fish drummer. Mm. And he sat down, and he put the headphones on, he started listening to the first song, and he took the headphones off, and he looked up at us, and he said, you guys didn't use a click track, did you? <sighs> and we went, what's a click track? <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> that's a metronome tack boys and girls and yeah. if you really want to get into recording please learn how to, well now it's better because i don't use click i don't use metronome anymore i'll use a rhythm track i'll find a rhythm track uh, i use easy drummer in fact did on a few of your songs and it and, worked somehow how did you do it, that with it, the drums well because it, with my inconsistency you had to do a lot of placing notes and this is also related i think to a question that we have here which i'll just put on the screen here from a, a, a wonderful loyal listener badger david and chet how did you kick out such a beautiful album so quickly and, and i think you know the, the actual answer is is um through the a answer. whole lot of hard work i mean because we're talking about 20 20 tracks and i think you know 23 23 tracks but who's counting and, and like forget about how much time it was involved with the songwriting or, or or my part your part for each one of those tracks was basically the better part of a day at least for each one of them and for in some one, cases yeah. more right yeah. mm -hmm. well i give the same answer that uh i was in the green room in 94 waiting to go on stage and pete seeger was warming up with his grandson and i grabbed utah phillips guitar and i was jamming along with him playing some lead and, and uh pete's grandson came over and said that sounds pretty good how how, how do you do that and i said practice <laughs> and that's the same answer i mean we have done it or i've been doing it uh, i actually started mixing in the box uh my band one of my bands we i did an album uh, a CD we reproduced in uh, 2016, maybe 17. And uh, <laughs> well, for a lot of years, <laughs> yes, working our asses off for a lot of years. Uh, but yeah, 2017, I'm pretty sure. And I was looking at this Recording Revolution website, really brilliant stuff watching the YouTubes and stuff. And so I ended up, I was mixing it using a 16 channel analog mixer, you know, the old pain in the ass way. And I, I got turned on to the idea of doing it all in the box. So that was the first thing I ever did in the box. It was all in Cubase uh, in 2017. And then I, and that really speeds up the process to have a digital, uh, audio workstation that you're really familiar with and literally 
it's got a 3000 page manual and I probably know what's going on on 14 pages of it, which is all you need. <laughs> you know? uh, so yeah, that was the, the you get into a, a groove. Well, plus I know David's playing. We, we worked together on the killing the messenger album and, and I actually have made a career of playing rhythm lead guitar with people and bass with people that I've never played with before, just knowing how to do it. So David and I have done enough to where when he was shooting me these, uh, these uh, MP3s, I didn't really have to learn his style because I already knew it. So that helped a lot. So I knew what to do on the bass, although each song actually suggested a different bass part. That's what was so fascinating to me. I, I kept telling David that I wasn't really doing this. It was the, these muses. The muses, yeah. Were like channeling in through what's left of my brain and operating my fingers and stuff. Uh, so it's really like magic. Uh, I would sit down with the song and I'll tell you, uh, what is it? Uh, true confession time. I can't hear lyrics. Mm. So <laughs> this, this, I, I literally, if I try, if you sat me down and tried to make me listen to a three minute song and hear all the words, I can't do it. My brain won't, won't do it. Just won't do it. So I didn't really fit anything to the lyrics. It was more the feel. I got a feel from enough of the words, I hear the story. I don't hear the individual words. Yeah. And then the story and the music that David provided, the melody line, they would suggest a bass line I should play. And then I would look around and usually I would go to guitar next, that Gallagher. Ah, thank you, Paul. Yeah. We did have a wonderful flow going. It started on December 10th, I guess, last year. And then it was just, he was shooting them to me and I was just so energized and I'd run them through Moises, drop them in Cubase and then just come over here to the other yurt and start picking instruments out. Like I say, bass first. And then usually I'd try a guitar part. In the case of uh, Baby Jesus, it was the Gallagher. I added some Gallagher, uh, towards the end there. And then I'm, I'm not a keyboard player. I have a little like 22 key MIDI controller into the uh, thing. I know enough keyboard to make chords, but yeah, I, seems I went to be plenty. It works so well. I mean, I mean you're well, not doing any fancy keyboard stuff, but those chords, just the textures. Yeah. Well, and, and it's even worse than that, because if you look at the diagram again, I I did each note in the chord in a separate track. <laughs> so, oh, great. <laughs> completely cheated. Great. So you can see this is the first track and it's just, you know, one note. And then there's the second track and the ending and the third track and the fourth track. So it's like, that's, you know, I'm, I'm keyboard challenged, but it was fun. It was kind of fun. I, I had to figure out recording the synth parts is hard. It was kind of weird at first because you'd record and then I'd make a boo-boo and you can't just back up and overdub the way I can with bass or uh, one of the uh, audio instruments. I actually ended up having two channels going. So when I made a boo-boo on the synth, I would switch to record on the next channel. And then when I made a boo-boo there, I'd go back to the original channel till I made, you know, till I had enough. And then I cut them up and put them back together again. So there's a little inside Cubase for you nice. for people who can't play keyboard. How you can play an instrument without needing, to, to, without actually <laughs> being able to play the instrument. Yeah, through technological assistance. Yeah. But again, and, it was like, you know, all of it was suggested by you know, the, the feel that I was getting, the, the emotions I was getting from the, from the story and the music of the mm. song. 
And what are we looking here at here? Well, this is uh, this is the track sheet for all the songs. That's right. So, like, Baby Jesus was just the bass, guitar, and then four synth parts. Famine and Disease, we just heard, was U bass. That was the little ukulele bass. That's why it sounded so deep. And then uh, the SG standard that I held up. I, I did three guitar parts on with that. Mm. Some of the others got a lot more crazy. Land and Freedom, we got the Jordan bass. We got the Gallagher three parts, three rhythm parts and a lead part. And then I had synth, elbow, and cello, and easy drummer. On some of your tracks, Cubase has this feature where it will do a tempo detection. And of course, you're an incredibly syncopated player, so most of the time it utterly failed uh, <laughs> in detecting your tempo. But sometimes, like on uh, on Land and Freedom, it was able to put together a coherent uh, tempo track. And once I had the tempo track, then I could create a track in Cubase that was the instrument track, which was the Easy Drummer connection to the Easy Drummer software that I have. Mm. And then I picked out a drum part that was close enough and then sometimes had to edit it uh, to remove extraneous garbage that I didn't want. And that's what happened with Land and Freedom. Just like the Nazis has got an uh, easy drummer part from the mm. Jordan River had one that worked. Stop the Genocide. It worked. Ah. And uh, Quite a few times. Yeah. So... I, well, those are the only times, but <laughs> and that's, that, but that's several, and and the, and it's a, that's where there's some kind of a percussion part that works with my fairly erratic guitar playing, it, like because so, so it's even though I'm not using a click track. I mean, I mean, this is one of the things as a as a non-session musician who's just like live performer who never uses a click track. But I've done a lot of recording recordings with a lot of really good musicians who who are used to playing with click tracks and all that. And um, I don't know if you just talk about this in this kind of like uh, phenomenon because like I, you've done so much of your musical career playing with musicians who can't count as well as you and it's or play as well as you in so many ways. I mean, this is like the life of the of the sort of musician that's accompanying, you know, singer songwriters. I mean, this is like how it is. I mean, you're just going to be way better at a lot of things than a lot of the people you're working with. And this is, and you've been doing this, that kind of, and, and a lot of people can, you know, have similar stories and if that's their, if that's what they've been doing, like backing up singer songwriters. But I, I don't know that, that it must require a certain degree of uh, just, uh, humility or I, I mean adaptability or flex i mean how how does that you, practice you, just practice <laughs> <laughs> well i did you know like i got into folk in 66 as a solo performer and then got in the acid rock band in 68 and then after that uh i became a drunk for a while but then i quit doing that because that wasn't working for me and uh got back into doing folk and with other people so uh yeah i was usually the quote best player in the band uh until i started backing up joe lewis walker in <laughs> mm. in 05 then i found out what big time players are like mm. uh quick aside you have very excellent tempo so i mean you're you're among <laughs> the people that I've played with that it's just your experience. You know, you've had so many years playing those, those uh, live gigs and you, you throw so many damn words in there. If your tempo wasn't decent on the guitar, you couldn't sing them. The words back is uh, helpful for getting the tempo better. Yeah. Uh, so I've usually been the best player quote, quote, and, and then the other thing is I, I've done like 25, 30 years of playing with folk singers. And uh, one thing is most of them are very predictable. So you know where the chord, next chord is probably going to be. I have a knack to, 
I, I wait a like a, a particle of a beat. So I'm sure what the next card's going to be. 95 times out of 100, I can guess what the next one's going to be. And in those yeah. other five times, I hear it before I start playing and can move my fingers to the right place. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, and that's practice, this is experience. And, uh, and yeah, but, and then other times I played with folks that have such bad tempo that it feels like I'm playing with one hand behind my back. Cause as, as a lead player, you're kind of going out there doing something that may or may not be interesting. And you kind of hope that when you're done with your lead and thanks to my best guitar teacher, Mark Benia back in the early eighties, he taught me about ending, you know, finishing your leads. That's something most lead players mm. that I've heard can't, you know, haven't learned to do yet. They fizzle it out kind of. Yeah, they kind of noodle noodle out instead yeah. of actually hitting a note that makes sense to say, okay, I'm done. And in time so that the verse can come back in. This is a this is another one practice. Uh but and knowing to do that. Right. Finishing but, uh, finishing a song too. That can, yeah. that can just fade yeah. out too. Well, yeah, as, as a performer, you know, you know that uh beginnings and endings if you nail the beginning and nail the ending you can fool almost everybody all the time that's right <laughs> into thinking you really know what you you're sound doing. you're like you know no, you're you can it. fluff up in the middle you know and hit a bad note once in a while pretend it's jazz right and uh do it do it a second time pretend but if you nail the ending man you've got them you've got them. you nail every ending <laughs> Chat, I think the last thing I want to ask you about is the um, the balancing act and the strange reality um, that we're all familiar with um, as musicians, where like um, being as a performer doing live performances, it's such a social, uh, extroverted kind of thing, and then so much of the rest of what we are often doing, um, writing or recording in some dark little yurt. But, you know, or wherever, you know, a living room, or, you know, away from any other people. Uh, it's a it's a real contrast. And talk about how you manage that, because I think you've got a nice a nice lifestyle going on there where you, you kind of balance these things out. Yeah, I've got my six to eight to ten, two to five hour farmers market gigs every month. And that's plenty enough. Some little extra money, but mainly for the playing. Great audiences, really appreciative. Mainly the vendors. You know, if we if we bore the vendors, we lose the job. So there you go. Uh, it's the people in the tents they're set the up the tents. They're right. they're our real audience, and those other people sitting there, the tourists, they're just you know along for the ride. So I'm very happy about that. Very satisfied. Uh, the answer to your question is, in the olden days, I, I, I drank and used drugs to get over my basic uh, hermit personality and introversion. And then since then, since I cleaned up, I haven't had anything to drink or use in the, in the 21st century. Um, I uh, learned how to act. <laughs> so, so in live situations, I, I, I am a uh, actor as well as a music performer. So I act the role of a extroverted music performer, go out right. and talk to the people and give them little stories about, you know, getting jumped by cowboys in Winnemucca, Nevada in 68 and all the little anecdotes of life on the, on the trail of music. And, uh, yeah, so it's an acting job. Pretty yeah, much. acting. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> what can I well, say? I'm a hermit, man. I love no, that, I love my I life here on the farm in the yurt with the cats and fake it till you make I, it. I think that's that's how it is. Really, yeah. I get just enough outside interacting with people, and it's nice interaction. I enjoy it. I'm, I'm just half kidding. The farmers about market the acting part. Yeah. yeah, the markets yeah, yeah. are just yeah. so great. Uh, no drunks, you know, no club yeah. owners. Right. 
bidding you down and all afternoon this farmers market much better than yeah that by the end of the night at a pub gig or something where, where half the audience oh. is uh, incoherent and yeah yeah well it has been a pleasure talking to you chat and other people enjoyed it as well and um we have this is a lovely comment from badger he sent baby jesus in the rubble to his fundamentalist christian republican <laughs> mother and she loved it <laughs> We we were aiming at that at that uh, target audience. We That's were looking right. to uh, we did to, uh, get fundamentalist Christians to uh, abandon the apocalypse or the what is it the rapture? Yeah, that was it. And to embrace the idea of everybody treating everybody as they would like to be treated themselves. That's right. So hopefully they all hear that album and then you know no more. No more rapture. <laughs> Thanks for that comment. That was really, that's really sweet. Thank you. Uh, and then Paula also was agreeing with your analysis of how to become a good musician with this quote from <laughs> Ursula Lewin. When asked how to, how to become a writer, she replied, write. Yeah, that's that's it. I, you know, people walk up to me and say, oh, I wish I could play. I, I, I'm tone deaf. I, I, right? you know, I can't, I no, can't play an instrument. You just I never said, practiced. Most of the time here, I just say, buy a uke. Oh, Go yeah. buy a uke. You can do three chords on a uke. Anybody can do three chords on a uke. And with three, four chords, you can play almost every song that you want to play. With four do chords, it. you can play every song on this album. That's right. <laughs> None of them have more than four. Maybe None five. of them have more than yeah. four. I don't think I don't so. Think, yeah. yeah, I don't think any of them have more than no. four. One, two, three, four. Well, yeah, one, maybe two, five. three, four. Yeah. Maybe, maybe five. five. Um, well, a couple of them might add five. Passing. Wasn't until Phil Phillips' uh, "Sea of Love" that I ever learned a chord, uh, song that had more than five chords in it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how Back many decades 56. it was before I ever learned a song with a bridge in it, or learned what a three chorus <laughs> is. I'm still not quite sure. <laughs> yeah, it's all well, we'll good. Go I'll just, land and I'll just notes. Here. All yeah, right. they're all notes. It's all jazz. It's all just music. Somebody said that maybe that's where the term jazz came from when people were asked, well, what kind of music is that? And they said, it's just music. And and then, the, you know, it's just music. Well, it's, my favorite quote is uh, Duke Ellington. They asked him what kind of music he likes, and he says, good. Good music, right. <laughs> yeah. So aloha, everybody. Aloha. Thanks for watching. Take care, chat. Thank you. as a war of good and evil you can pretend that your cause is just you can try to say you have the moral army and the other is just driven by bloodlust you can say you're on the side of western values and the others represent barbarity you can say your enemies want chaos while you stand up for prosperity You can keep on telling lies from here to kingdom come But all that anybody wants is land and freedom You can say they've got the wrong religion You can say that they just want to hate You can drop bombs upon their cities you can say your god is great you can speak of punishment and lessons and how you must eliminate all the terrorists that you had to slaughter in the course of your affairs of state you can keep on telling lies from here the kingdom come all that anybody wants is land and freedom You can claim that you represent the future And the other represents the times of old You can talk about how liberated your people are Not like their feudal patriarchal mold 
You can talk about your love of life and liberty You can paint a death mask on your foe You can say what you like about your enemy But you can't change what everybody knows You can keep on telling lies from here to kingdom come But all that anybody wants is land and freedom